You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is taken from Revelations chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I, have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell in the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The ones who conquers, I will make them a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and all my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, can I just say something crazy? I love crazy. All my life has been a series of doors in my face. And then suddenly I bump into you. I was thinking the same thing because... I've been searching my whole life to find my own place. And maybe it's the party talking or the chocolate fondue, but with you, I found my place. And it's nothing like I've ever known before. Love is an open. Yes, okay. You probably sang more there than during our songs, just to kind of just be aware of that. Love is an open door. Now, that is a great thought. That's a great thought. After rejection, exclusion, door slammed in their face their whole life, these two lovebirds finally meet the one that seems to, to open up life once again. And the idea for many of us is that love opens the world to us. Love breaks down any and every barrier that would ever attempt to hold us back. It releases us into endless possibilities of our wildest dreams. Love would never seek to hold us back. Love would never make us endure something that we don't want. Love would never tell us no. And yet the truth is, just as much as love is an open door, what is equally true, sometimes love is a closed door. In fact, Revelation 3, this Jesus who loves us, in fact, he loves us so much, it says that he wants the entire world to know that he loves us, This Jesus is presented as the one who not only opens doors, but as the one who shuts them. He opens to us doors of possibility, and yet he calls us to faithfully and patiently endure when he allows other doors to be closed. When we face difficulty, when we face resistance, when we face exclusion in life. 
And so the questions that we must wrestle is not just what are we going to, going to do with open doors of possibilities. And, and don't hear me wrong. I believe that Jesus has called us into the abundant life. He has opened a life of possibility for us through the resurrection. But what, what is equally true is this question. How are we going to respond to closed doors? What do we do in the face of closed doors? And so what I want to ask you to do is just to think for a moment and ponder the last time you faced a serious closed door in your life. Perhaps it was a relationship, perhaps it was an opportunity, perhaps it was something to do with your career or your job or housing or children or you fill in the blank, that door, you were, it was, seemed so hopeful and then it just slams in your face. How did you respond to it? See, the way that we handle closed doors is just as important as how we respond to open doors. And we have, many of us have very different approaches to closed doors. There are those of us that have the bulldog mentality. This is very much me. At the face of a closed, closed door, we see this as a challenge to force our way through. You're going you're gonna to close that door on me? No, I'm just going to push through all the more. I see it as a challenge of who I am, and so I push it. I even hear a door closed behind me, a door that I wasn't really even that interested in, but the fact that it closed, I'm going to push myself through it. Or some of us have the defeatist mentality. At the first sight of a door closing, we just throw up our hands. We're, we're, we're done. See, I knew today was going to be a bad day. We hear, we hear just the slightest hinge squeak, and we're like, okay, God has abandoned us. Just, it's done. The doors are closed. I, I just knew I shouldn't have left the home today. Some of us have the bulldog mentality, some of us have the defeatist mentality, but as we see here in the scriptures, Jesus is calling us to something entirely different. And when God allows doors to close, and I hope they told you that he will, opportunities, relationships, connections, children, jobs, you fill in the blank, it is not an invitation for us to force our way through nor is it an opportunity to throw our hands in the air and just quit. But rather, it's a call to look to the door that has been opened. This is how God often directs our lives. This is often how God refines our character. And this is often how God directs us to get to where he desires us to be. Listen to the words of Helen Keller. She once said that, when one door closes, another opens. Now, that's where we typically end the quote. But often we look so long at the closed door that we do not see the one that has been opened for us. I think some of us are here today just staring dumbfounded by that closed door of disappointment and stuck in one moment of time, not willing to move on because we're so disappointed in how life did or didn't turn out. Stuck closed, or stuck staring at that closed door. What next? What next? Obsessed about things not going our way. Look at me in verse 8. When Jesus says, Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. This, this word behold, is not a suggestion. This is an imperative, a.k.a. this is Jesus' command for your life. Behold, look, stop focusing your attention on what life has not been and look at the possibility of what life could be in me. Because the truth is, your life is going to be a series 
of doors in your face, but Jesus is saying, look to me, the door of life and the door of love that no one will ever be able to shut on you. The door that will never close in your face. And so this is how the letter begins today, with our attention turned on Jesus, the one who holds the key, the one who opens the door, and the one that welcomes us into his home. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to deviate from the typical pattern that we've been looking at these letters through again this week. And we're going to look at this passage under three headings. We're going to look first at the key, secondly, the door, and then finally, the pillars. The key, the door, and the pillars. Let's look first at the key. Now, a little bit of history about the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia was founded in the second century B.C. by a king nicknamed Philadelphus, which means brotherly love. And it was because of his, obviously, his admiration and love for his brother. And so the city was named in honor of him. But in 17 A.D., so in the first century, the city experienced a horrible earthquake earthquake that destroyed almost everything in the city. And so what the city did was they reached out to the Roman Empire for emergency relief, like a city or a county or maybe even a state in dire emergency would reach out for aid. They reached out to Rome for help. And Tiberius Caesar, who was the emperor at the time, ended up sending help, but it wasn't like significant help. Essentially what he did was he sent the city tax breaks. He gave them like a five-year hiatus from sending their taxes into Rome. And so, because he threw them a bone, in honor of him, they ended up changing their name from Philadelphia to Neo Caesarea, which means New Caesar. But the help was short-lived, and it was temporary relief, but it didn't get them back to a place of stability. It just kind of helped them in the meantime. Then what ends up happening is, almost a decade later, another earthquake devastates this area again, somewhere in the 20s A.D., but because, of, but because Philadelphia, now known as Neo-Caesarea, was not a large, it was not a significant city, when all the cities around that were devastated went to Rome to get help, Philadelphia, or Neo-Caesarea, was overlooked because it wasn't a significant place. They were excluded. The door was shut in their face, so, so to speak. So disappointed by how they were treated, what they ended up doing was changing their name back to Philadelphia. Forget you, we're Philadelphia again. Now, if this isn't strange as it is, history tells us that this happened multiple times in the first century. Devastation would occur, a new emperor would come into power, they would change their name in honor of him, he would eventually let them down and exclude them in some way, and they would end up changing their name. Snip, snap, snip, snap, snip, snap, back and forth. Three of you Office fans got that, okay. So if anything, this history, uh, the history of the city tells us something, that this is a people that struggle with knowing who they are. We're this, we're that, we're this, we're that. And, and this is a people that were in a constant state of instability because they had attached their identity and their worth and their security to leaders that would eventually let them down. This is an extremely relevant thought for us in a political year like 2020. 
where God's people or people in general can just find themselves in such a state of flux and instability and not knowing who they are when they attach their identity, worth, and significance to leaders that will let them down. So imagine with me how significant and timely these words of Jesus would have been. Look with me in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One, He who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So there's some things about Jesus that I want to focus on here briefly. The first thing that it tells us is that Jesus is the Holy One. Jesus is the Holy One. What does it mean that Jesus is holy? It means that Jesus is set apart. It means that Jesus is in an entirely different category. He's altogether different than any and every human leader that you've ever been let down by. So this is significant because I hear often, you know, I have a hard time relating to God as father because I was so disappointed by my father. Fair. And yet God is holy. He's altogether different. I have a hard time submitting to Jesus' authority because I was let down and hurt by authority figures. Fair. And yet Jesus is the holy one. He's, He's altogether different. Uh... I loved someone and I was vulnerable with someone that ended up exploiting that vulnerability and hurting me. Fair. And yet Jesus is holy. Altogether different. The second thing he tells the church is that Jesus is the true one. Now, he is true in in the the sort of factual truth-telling way, but that's not what's being meant here. Think more in, in terms of structural integrity, something being solid, something being true. What Jesus is saying is, I am the true one. I am the reliable one. And so when the earthquakes of life hit and unstable places in society become apparent again, I will be your stability. I will be your foundation. I will be faithful to you, and I will never exclude you. I will stand with you. And then third, he says, Jesus is the one with the key of David. What does that mean? Well, this is a reference to a story in the Old Testament that we find in Isaiah 22. And the historic account goes that there was a leader over God's people that was an unfaithful leader. And God says, you're out. And he gave him the boot. He kicked him out. And he said, I'm going to replace you with a faithful leader. And so what he ended up doing was uh, appointing a leader and giving him the royal robes and what was, quote, the key of David, which meant the keys of the kingdom of Israel. You now stand in the place of power. You now rule from the throne. You are now king and authority over my people. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, that points to me. The old emperor is out. The new leader is in. And I hold the keys of the kingdom. Meaning the authority to determine your worth is not Rome's. It's me. It's mine. I say who you are. I determine your worth. I determine your place in the kingdom. And so with this key, secondly, he opens the door. The door. Now evidently this exclusion that the church in Philadelphia had experienced was not just a citywide sort of political exclusion that they experienced in times of devastation, but it was also a religious exclusion as well. In fact, in in the first century, many Christians uh, continued to meet in synagogues and keep 
close connections with the Jewish community. Now remember, the Christian faith is not unhitched from the Old Testament. It's not unhitched from the Jewish lineage and the Hebrew lineage and the Hebrew faith. Christians are simply those who believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's the one that fulfilled all this thing. And so in the first century specifically, there was a lot of overlap. It wasn't like a synagogue on this corner and then a a Christian Protestant church over here. They were in fellowship together. But what was happening was there were some in the Jewish community, and this is not making a general statement about Judaism, but some in the Jewish community that were trying to force this sort of Jesus-believing group out of the religious community, out of the synagogue. So so picture this with me. Not only are the doors of Rome being closed with them, but the doors to the synagogue, to to public worship, to religious expression, to religious freedom, those doors are being closed on them too. And so if there's anyone, if there's ever been a people that had no place in this world, doors just being closed left and right on them, it would be this church here in Philadelphia. Rejection after rejection after rejection. But Jesus gives them then this remarkable encouragement in light of what they're facing. Look with me in verses eight through nine. I know your works. I see you. And what I need you to see, behold, is I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come And bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. They will know once and for all that you are my beloved people. And so when Jesus says, I hold the key, it doesn't only mean that he has the authority to determine your worth. It also means that he opens the door to us and for us to the true and lasting kingdom. And in this kingdom is a place where the church will be honored as God's chosen And beloved people, and think about this thought, we will be honored by the very ones that dishonor us because of the name of Jesus Christ. How is that for reversal? It will be the very ones that kick you out that will come before you and honor you as my beloved children. In times of rejection, in times of disappointment, in times where life is not going your way, which I have to imagine that many of us fall in these sort of times right now, what we have to do is we have to remember this door. Doors will be closing all around us, but we have to focus on this door and live present to the door that has been opened to us. Now, you may be asking, what is that door? What does that door look like? Where do I find it? How is that door opened to me? I'm glad you asked. John records elsewhere in the Gospel of John the words of Jesus. And hear these words of Jesus. He makes it really simple for us. I am the door. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I, however, came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus says it very clearly. I am the door, and my death and resurrection are how you're getting in. I lay down my life for the sheep. 
And so the good news of the kingdom is that entrance into this kingdom, entrance into God's kingdom, is not based on your significance. It's not based on your social status. It's not based on your religious performance. It's not based on how sort of connected you are to the religious factions or the Christian community. In fact, it's not based on anything about you. It's not based on you. Entrance into the kingdom, the Bible tells us, is a gift of grace to be received by faith. And it's not reserved for the powerful. It's not reserved for the influential. It's not reserved for the most religious. But if I'm reading this right, according to Jesus, it's reserved for those with little power. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Jesus loves me, he who died. Heaven's gate to open wide. He will wash away my sin. Let his little child come in. Now, if you think that was a children's song, you're mistaken. This is the foundation of our faith. This is plumbing the depths of Christian theology. That God loved us so much, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be strength for the weak and entrance for the excluded. Listen to how Paul, the apostle Paul, would remind us about who we are and who we were. And it's not for the faint of heart. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, sorry to break it to you, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God, can I get an amen? Chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So the Bible tells us that in our weakness, the great strength of God is displayed. You want to be strong for God? you got to embrace your weakness. And the strength that God provides and reveals in us is not measured by the closed doors that you break down, but by the patient endurance you display in the midst of them. I'm not impressed by the person that forces their way through the Christian life. I'm impressed by the one who patiently endures affliction. This is strength that God provides you in order to hold fast and persevere. That's where the strength is revealed. And what this presents for us, and this is where I really need you to pay attention here. What this presents for us is an open door of opportunity every single time one is closed. So this is how the Helen Keller quote is true. When one door is closed, another one is open. And what this means is that the open doors that God then opens in those closed door opportunities are not, not, not necessarily an escape from our difficulty, not necessarily an opportunity to flee, but an opportunity to witness to the power of God in the midst of difficulty. 
Paul would talk about open doors as opportunities for the gospel. But it wasn't a Paul that was pushing down doors and displaying his strength. It was a Paul who said, I came in weakness knowing nothing but Christ in him crucified. I was beat up, chewed up, spit out, stoned, and not the good kind, and destroyed. But here I stand. And in my weakness, my prayer, my hope is that the great strength of God will be made all the more evident in your midst. I guess there's no good kind of stone, but you know what I meant. Um, let's look finally at the pillars. The pillars. Verse 12. The one who conquers, to the one who conquers. I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. How's that? What is God making you? A pillar. Now, if I could be honest, uh, there are a lot of things that I would dream of God making me. I just never really dreamt, you know, as a young man, one day God's going to make me a column in the temple. We don't really appreciate columns until we remember what they do. Think of a 1989 sort of earthquake happening here. We're really going to be depending on these things right here, aren't we? This pillar that's like blocking me from Don and Dave back there, we're actually really going to count on those one day. We're counting on them right now to hold up the ceiling. But the honest truth is, uh, there's nothing really remarkable, at least in my mind, about pillars until we begin to think about the history of Philadelphia and consider their really long, difficult relationship with earthquakes. And, and history, often te- uh, his- history tells us that when, when, these, when these earthquakes would devastate the city of Philadelphia, what would often only be left remaining, everything would be destroyed, but the pillars and the temples. And... This, I believe, is really what's at the heart of this promise that Jesus is giving his church. He's saying, I'm offering you a place of stability like none other. When everything shakes and everything crumbles, I'm, I'm offering you a place of stability. Now, there's a scene in a movie uh, called The Bridge of Spies. And the main character, James Donovan, played by Tom Hanks, is a, Tom Hanks fans, uh, is played by Tom Hanks. Um, anyways, uh, he's representing an accused Soviet spy during the Cold War. And everyone is telling him, you, you do not want to do this. As a lawyer, you're throwing your career out the window. You're ruining your career by defending this man. You're never going to get a job in this town. And it gets really bad. In fact, he's getting death threats. People are shooting guns at his home because they're just angry that they, especially in the Cold War, that he would be defending an accused Soviet spy. But he was committed to defending a man that was deserving of due justice. And so he goes to visit the man in jail. And he comes and he's in the jail cell. And the accused Soviet spy, Rudolf Abel, is sitting there. And, and uh, Donovan's standing up. And the, the man, the, the accused spy, he says, standing there like that, you remind me of a man who used to come to our house when I was a little boy. He says, my father used to always tell me, watch this man. And so I did. Every time, every time he came over and I watched him, 
And never once did he ever do anything remarkable. And Donovan looks at him and he's like, and I remind you of him. He says, but there was that one time. I was a young boy and our house was overrun by partisan border guards. He says, dozens of them. My mother was beaten. My father was beaten. And this man, my, my father's friend, he was beaten. And so I watched this man. I watched him. And every time they hit him, he stood back up again. So they hit him again and again, harder and harder. And still, this guy got back up to his feet. He says, I think because he continued to stand, they let him live. And he pauses for a moment, as you could tell, he's just recalling this moment from decades before. And then he says, stoky music. Stoky music. I remember them saying over and over again. And Donovan asks, what does that mean? He says, it means standing man. Standing man. What Jesus is promising to make us his people into is standing men and standing women. This is the picture of the pillar. Pillars don't buckle when the ground shakes. Pillars don't crumble when things give way. Those who stand weak in, them, in themselves but strong in the Lord persevere. Sister, I've seen what you have endured and still you are standing. Brother, I've seen what you've endured and still you are standing. Church, we have weathered some storms and yet by God's grace, still we stand. Standing men, standing women. And so think about this image. First, the pillar is a picture of strength. And these would have been life-giving words. And I think they continue to be life-giving words for a people that feel very weak and powerless. Secondly, a pillar is also a, a picture of inclusion. For all the many ways that you may have felt pushed out in your life or excluded or on the fringe, Jesus says, I will give you a place of of permanence in my home. I will make you an immovable figure and no one will ever force you out. And then finally, pillars are a picture of identity. Jesus promises to write the name of God on us. So I, I picture Jesus with hammer and chisel in hand, chiseling the name of God. This one here is dedicated to the Lord. This one's mine, identified in him. And what this means for the church in Philadelphia and what this means for us is never again will you have to change your name. Never again will you have to attach your identity and your worth and your significance and your security to anyone because I am with you. And I will give you a true and lasting identity. And the identity that I give you, you will carry with you into eternity as a pillar in my temple. And so I close with the words of Jesus. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for this time.